Und der Haifisch, der hat Zähne und die trägt der Und Mekis, der John. hat ein Messer, doch das Messer sieht man nicht. Hey everybody, it's Comedy on Vinyl. This week we are doing an Ernie, Co an, Ernie, ugh, an Ernie Kovacs album entitled The Ernie Kovacs Album, which to the best of my knowledge is the only one, unless this is a compilation, we're not sure if it's a re-release. We didn't do that part of the research. I didn't. I'm pretty sure, I've, I've looked it up before, um, and I'm pretty sure it's just a compilation that they took from the USC archives. Okay. And a lot of it's the actual TV it's the audio recordings of some of the TV performances. Right, which is what makes this one a little weird. The other voice you're hearing right now, by the way, is Adam X. Storm. Hi. And Adam produced is. my uh, audiobook. He's a musician. He's kind a painter of. artist. Kind of? No, you're, you're a musician. You count. What do I call you? He's an attorney. He's uh, what else do you do? I don't know, just renaissance man. He's a renaissance man. That is what Adam Storm is. But the reason he's here is because he's the person who introduced me to Ernie Kovacs, despite the fact that I should have seen him years ago. Honestly, they should be doing classes on Ernie Kovacs in film school. Like that. That like if I I wish they'd have given me an Ernie Kovacs class in film school. Yeah, definitely. Especially know, TV. Exactly. Especially TV production. Yeah. Because like what he. Uh, <clears throat> like what he did in TV was like so revolutionary at the time. Even yeah. though we're talking about vinyl audio, it, it doesn't matter. We but use there's these an excuses to talk to others because <clears throat> he worked. Shit. He worked in radio for. Actually, worked in radio stations in Trenton, Philadelphia, and New York, uh -huh. for I, I'm, I'm close. I think like ten years, give okay. or take a couple years. Yeah. Before he switched to TV, mm -hmm. and actually, the gig that he got his first TV gig was a cooking show. In Philadelphia, and uh, what the hell was the name of it? Deadline, deadline for dinner. Uh huh. And it actually ran for I think like three or four years. It was uh -huh. on twice a week in Philadelphia. It was a half an hour. Uh -huh. And the story was, <clears throat> he had been working. Well, I guess should we just do a quick bio on Ernie? Yeah, go Ernie ahead. Kovacs? Okay. Yeah, do it. Adam knows born, absolutely everything about Ernie Kovacs. Born in Trenton, New Jersey, which is where I was born. Mm -hmm. At one time. We're not. I'm not exactly sure if it was one of his best friends that he was working with at the Trenton radio station uh -huh. that he wrote with, or if he himself took a room at the house that would become my grandmother's house that I grew up in, okay. partially. So that's why we actually have these giant vinyl, well, they're not even vinyl, I don't know, they're the heavy slate masters from uh -huh. the radio station. Holy because shit. the radio station that he worked at was right down the street. Yeah. So we think that he had a room there. And we actually have these giant slate masters from the radio station from, like, the 30s. Holy shit. Okay, they were left in the attic. So we're not sure if he was there or I think his engineer, the engineer actually lived in the house. Yeah. And, like, and Ernie Kovacs stayed at the house while he was working there. Right. Can you um, listen to them? Wait, can you play we, them? We've again? never, no, because they're big and you need yeah. a special player. My uncle looked into it a couple of years ago. We need to find that out, man. I know. Oh, no, I have them and I took them out so they're all like, they're all like covered and wrapped in plastic and sealed so yeah. nothing can happen to them. Right. Uh, but we don't know what the hell to do with them, but at some point I'll do something yeah, with them. But absolutely. they're in Trenton, New right. Jersey, sure. so I can't. So, but anyway, he grew up, born, raised Trenton, graduate of Trenton High, mm -hmm. mediocre high school student. Graduates in five years, actually. He had uh -huh. to repeat his senior year because he was not in class so much. Mm -hmm. uh, he gets into theater 
with this guy, uh, I forget his name, like some kind of like German name, like Van, uh, whatever, but his theater teacher, who I've actually heard, they, they renamed in Trenton the, the, the actual theater complex mm -hmm. in, in Trenton, New Jersey, is named after this instructor, okay. this teacher, who did summer stock in Long Island and was tied in with the, the stage in Manhattan. Okay. And this is all like in the 30s, mm -hmm. right? So Ernie starts getting really into theater. He starts doing summer stock, he comes back to Trenton, He's working. He's supporting his mom. He's working at a cigar shop. He's a big cigar smoker. Uh -huh. Like, he always had a cigar. They say he smoked close to 20 cigars a day. Mm. Jesus Christ. Yeah. It cost him, they, they figured, like, either anywhere from thirteen to $15,000 in 1950s dollars <laughs> a year shit. in cigars. Right? Oh, my God. Guy was constantly was, smoking and like, drinking. What is that, 80, 100,000 now? 80, maybe? 70, 80? Yeah, God knows. It'd right. probably be the equivalent of, like, yeah, sixty, eighty thousand $80,000 at least. Jesus Christ. Yeah, I mean, he would he'd smoke two dollar cigars and smoke twenty of them a day. <laughs> it's insane. They were Cuban too, um, which is a weird full circle thing mm -hmm. there with the Cuban thing because he was in uh, My Man in Havana with oh, Sir yeah. Alec Guinness, mm -hmm. and he was actually there literally weeks before the, the revolution. That's weird. Anyway, so my whole infatuation with him comes back to the fact that I don't know. He's he's more of a figure, especially in Trenton and mm -hmm. Philadelphia. He's a traditional TV figure from the fifties. Yeah. <clears throat> so you grew up a little bit familiar with him. Mm -hmm. The local, like, uh, the local just whatever, now it's like the CW. Yeah. But it was just like that local, what is that, UHF affiliate. Right, right. Used to play the best of Ernie Kovacs. Oh, that's awesome. Like, at like 10 at night. Uh -huh. And my TV, all I had was just antenna, so I used mm -hmm. to watch this shit when I was like a little kid. That's awesome. And, uh, but yeah, so the history is, is that he was came back from doing theater and some summer stock for like two years mm -hmm. he spent some time actually they treated him they mistreated him for tuberculosis he had pneumonia oh and they put him in a in a, in a sanitarium uh -huh. for for uh like like almost like eight months Jesus Christ. they removed one of his lungs and did all these things what? to like blow up his lungs for tuberculosis and all this stuff holy shit. so anyway so that happens after the summer stock and then he comes back to Trenton. He's working in a cigar store and a couple odd jobs. And then radio was just really starting up because this is like the early 30s, yeah. right? 30s, mid-30s. And radio's just really starting to, to pick up. Mm -hmm. And uh, basically, he just went over to the station and mm -hmm. they needed someone to read news and weather in the morning. Yeah. And that's how he started. So he did that for several years, became a very intricate part of this new radio station that uh -huh. was in downtown Trenton, um, did a lot of revolutionary things with that in radio. I mean, he literally would take the equipment, throw it in the back of a giant pickup truck, and uh -huh. do on-location. Holy shit. Yeah, and like he would, I mean, him and the people, there's something about him that he would have these concepts, mm -hmm. and they would take the equipment, and they would innovate. Yeah. Like, I mean, he would go and broadcast football games and things. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is back in the 30s. Right. This is before, what's a, the, when you're on location, what's that, there's a technical yeah, radio a term, term for it. I can't remember. Anyway, mm -hmm. he didn't have any of that equipment. He would, like, yeah. literally take the entire studio, mm -hmm. put it in the back of, like, a truck, and go and interview people during Christmas in downtown Trenton and stuff. That's awesome. So anyway, um, one thing leads to another, and he starts doing a morning radio show and working in Philadelphia, mm -hmm. uh, doing radio. And they had this show called Deadline for Dinner, and it was a cooking show. Mm -hmm. And 
they were filming it in Philadelphia, and the host, because at the time you had cooking shows, had a host and then the actual chef. Okay. And the host kind of would be the person, why are you doing that? And the chef would explain. It was kind yeah, of more okay. like a tag team than just like the albeit Martha Stewart. Right. Omnipotent, I'll tell you everything thing. It had kind of more of this dynamic. Yeah. Um, and that was a standard cooking show, you know, really popular on early TV. So someone said, hey, Ernie Kovacs, he had a reputation of being a complete lunatic uh -huh. and like a lot of fun. They're like, he does, he has a good voice, he does radio, and so they gave him that shot, and he had that gig for three, four years, and that's where everything kind of came from as far as, you know, <clears throat> he, at the time, I don't think he had any, any real ambitions as far as anything I've read that TV. Yeah, yeah. I think the opportunity came, and he just took it, and he would have taken it no matter what, but it wasn't like he was like... Yeah. Looking to get into TV or do anything. He's just kind of making ends meet. But he was always like a prankster. And opportunities presented in himself that, you know, the cooking show read to, led to him doing the first, uh, in the entire U.S., the first more live morning show on radio. Really? Yeah. Um, or, I'm sorry, geez, the first live morning TV show. Oh, right, right, right. right. Yeah. Because they've been doing the radio shows. Because he had been doing the radio show mm -hmm. on the morning for a long time, so he's doing the cooking show. Okay. So then they say, well, we don't. They don't. They never broadcast TV until like ten or eleven in the morning. Right. So they said, well, let's try it with him. The yeah. success of Ernie Kovacs in Philadelphia with his morning show actually is what led to the producers of NBC because he worked as an NBC affiliate uh -huh. to create the Today Show. Holy shit! Yeah. And the Today Show is the only reason why he was taken off after like two, three years in Philadelphia was uh -huh. because the show that he had in Philadelphia was uh, was replaced because they made Today a nationally sure. broadcast yeah. show. But yeah, I mean, he was the precursor. The, the, the Today Show, which, think about how revolutionary that right. is yeah. to TV, format, everything, uh -huh. much the fact that it's still on today. Right. That was only done because he was killing ratings and he actually was the first example that, hey, people watch TV in the morning while yeah. they're getting ready. That makes sense. Yeah, and most people just thought of it as an evening with your dinner thing, sort of. Right, right. So, so, and that's and that's the story. And like, literally, it all started just with uh, him just being right to place, right time, and a guy yeah. not showing up for a cooking show. It's funny. In Trenton, random. That's Our hilarious. Well, the thing about this album, obviously, like we were talking about earlier, it doesn't all translate because a lot of it's from a show. It sounds like two or three things were recorded specifically for the album, just the Percy Dove Tonsil stuff, maybe. Yeah, I think the Percy Dove Tonsil stuff was probably, it sounds like it was taken from the radio archives because the, okay. the character of Percy Dove Tonsils was, was, goes way back, way back to the Trenton days. Okay. Him on radio in Trenton. It's fucking awesome. But everything had that quirky feel. Mm -hmm. Film, radio, audio, his comedy. It was all kind of sketch very kind of quick. He wrote article. He actually had for God, I think like six, seven years. He actually had a a daily column in the Trentonia. Jesus Christ! And and, man. and it, you see you see the same thing because like you see like that the article the column every morning was all about play of words. Uh -huh. The audio is all about weird sound effects and play on words and yeah. almost confusing. And the same thing with visuals: turning a camera upside down or angling a camera so when you pour a glass. Or some mm -hmm. pour water into a glass it pours on. So the the album in some ways represents kind of his comedic, like uh, I guess ethos. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's obviously they concentrate on what what you could hear as much as possible. Right. It's, it's. I wish you could describe more of the. Sh I mean, we can describe more of the show. This is just an excuse to talk about him in general. Right. Because the album, like you say, does not give 
Yeah, it, it kind best. of. Yeah, I mean, there's I mean, a couple. He used chroma key and stuff for the like. People weren't doing anything experimental or even at all with chroma key, to the best of my knowledge. I don't know when they started using it on TV. The chroma key, like, what do you mean? Uh, like the uh, uh, the blue. Well, wasn't a blue screen. Oh, like, yeah, like the yeah, blue but, screen. Yeah, mm -hmm. like superimposition. And yeah. Stuff. Oh yeah. But I mean, yeah. he was doing it the old-fashioned way. Yeah, where camera he was using on camera. Negative. He was using yeah. like black space. Right. For the, the yeah, they're using black space, Jesus and they would. Christ, I've yeah. read about how they did it, and they did it camera on camera. They would do something that they yeah. would put three cameras on a camera on a monitor on a camera on a monitor. <gasps> Oh, that makes sense. And that's how it worked. I don't know shit it's about insane, TV. But that's not yeah. that, because, yeah, if, if you, because uh, it's easy enough to, it, whatever, I'm not going to talk about the technical shit. But that makes sense. That's ridiculous, though, because, I mean, he obviously, I mean, that's just some Citizen Kane shit. Because Orson Welles, they always said the reason Citizen Kane is so good is because he had no idea what his limits were, and he just asked, how do, how the fuck do we get this done? Right. And somebody would figure it out for him. Right. Obviously, Ernie Kovacs was experimenting. Well, that, that's exactly it. Done. There's, there's the guys in Philadelphia that he originally did the morning talk show, which is where a lot of the 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 TV uh, kind of, like, uh, effects and all that type uh -huh. of stuff, where his gags and his techniques were developed. Mm -hmm. Like, Two of the guys ended up going and being um, like head engineers for NBC. His group that he had, his engineers, just the cameramen and just the yeah. sound, the engineers that he had in uh, in Philadelphia for the morning show, where uh -huh. he developed a lot of the initial techniques. Two of those guys ended up being chief engineers for NBC, like in New okay. York. Like they went, like these guys are actually recognized. I think there's like some sort of like te TV technical award that's uh -huh. named after a guy who was Ernie Kovacs' camera. That's man. awesome. Yeah, that's fucking. So I mean, it was kind of right place, right time. Yeah, you know. Yeah. I mean, I guess if these guys like kind of had the know-how. In a lot of ways. Sorry, just making sure it's still recording. That's cool. <laughs> so, yeah. So I guess we could talk about. The album. Young Tom was, even now at this very moment, bound hand and foot and lying in an abandoned automat in the tuna fish salad slot. He had been slugged, drugged, and mugged by four masked men who had carried him off. The only clue Tom had as to their identity was what they called one another, stupid. However, Tom was not one to lie long in idleness, and soon his fertile brain concocted a scheme to free himself, perhaps in time for the game. Constructing a shortwave radio set with his upper lip and knees, he called the president of the New York Stock Exchange on the radio. Not giving his name, Tom merely said in a dignified yet friendly voice, I understand the automat at 32 East Hefner Street is at an excellent location. The stock exchange president buzzed the buzzer and soon the wheels of industry were set in motion. The automat was purchased for $1 million, incorporated, redecorated, and soon the customers were pouring in their nickels at the ready. If only, Tom thought, one of them would come over to the tuna fish salad slot. For, if I am any judge, the first three quarters of the Feats ball game, as Tom called it, are over. Then, unfortunately, an elderly gentleman wearing a pince-nez and carrying an umbrella stopped in front of the glass window covering the slot into which young Tom was crowded. Bless me, he expostulated, and Tom realized it was none other than his good friend, Professor Shockey. Tom tried to look as much like an appetizing tuna fish salad as possible, so that the professor would open up the glass window. But alas, the professor chose a cream cheese salad instead with sliced pineapple. Good. All right, so let's uh, crack a beer. Where's mine? Is this right one there. Mine? Yeah, okay. I opened it for you. Sweet. All right, so let's, uh, let's start where we left off. So, yeah. Well, we so, don't leave off anywhere specific. But, yeah, so you were saying uh, that 
yeah, obviously we were talking about how revolutionary the TV show was. And mm -hmm. I mean, it, again, without showing them, it's hard. You know what I'll do is I'll put up links to YouTube clips that you pick. You right. just pick like ones that you think are like the best. Yeah, definitely. And uh, we'll put up like five or six of them. Yeah, so we can do that. Just check it out. Because, um, I mean, like you listen to this. And, uh, but the thing is, though, listening to this album, um, I was just trying to think of stuff that I could compare it to as far as like wordplay because it immediately reminded me of two things one like some of the best Monty Python stuff like yes. th their albums are great yes Monty Python all, so much stuff. all the writers from Monty Python mm -hmm. and um, Terry Gillum and all, I mean all the main writers what's the other main guy not uh, Cleese not Cleese the other one I Eric Idle yeah Eric Idle yeah Eric Idle has talked that uh, in interviews I've read that uh huh Ernie Kovacs is one of his hands down most yeah. influential. Okay. So, yeah, like Eric Idle's literally said that. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that makes, makes that's actually okay. really perceptive. That makes me happy because, like, his, uh, some of this, I don't know if you ever heard the, the scene that is the Monty Python sketch where he's reading, like, a kid's book, supposedly a kid's book. Right. Just, like, I, just the way the words are formed, even though a lot of them are nonsense. It's right. the same thing. It's a mixture of, like, right. it's like really the good pan. language, but yeah, it's deadpan. It's really good language, some nonsense language, but it's like, it's kind of, it's 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 poetry in how beautiful it sounds because it's so ridiculous. Right. You know what I mean? Right. And that's kind of I think I think like. the other thing that they have in common too is the one thing that's really interesting about Ernie Co Ernie Kovacs, I think, and I'm like fascinated by him. Sure. Um, is his comedy comes from a different place. It comes yeah. from the same place that like Monty Python is. Yeah. It's very like populist. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. Like you laugh at Monty Python. It's almost like they're making comedy from the audience perspective. Sure. The yeah. subject matter and yeah. all those things. They're not sitting there and editorializing because that's your normal comedian. Right. Right. Your right. standard stand-up is an editorial. Sure. I mean, that's all the way back to like the Roman days and the yeah. Greeks. That's yeah. what the comedist was. You know, like that's what that concept was. Like mm -hmm. the comedian. Yeah. But this is like different, and it's like Monty Python's the same way. It's about like an absurd situation going into a pet store, right? Or it's about an absurd child story, mm -hmm. or something like that. Mm -hmm. and it's, I mean, it takes things that people understand, and but it's 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 absurd, but it's completely uh, uh, accessible absurdity, mm -hmm. which is not the case for a lot of quote unquote art. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of people really hated Andy Kaufman. You know, right, take him or leave him. Right. But I think a lot of people would more people would appreciate Ernie Kovacs for yeah. whatever reason. I don't know if it's well. There's a lot of his later stuff too, which obviously isn't in audio. It's almost all visual. Mm -hmm. Like his most successful and like critically acclaimed. This is Ernie Kovacs. His most successful and critically acclaimed thing was a character. Well, two things. One was a character named Eugene. Okay. Which basically had a lot of spots on specials. He did mm -hmm. a lot of TV specials. Okay. And actually had his own special at one point, like the Eugene movie essentially really? awesome yeah it's hilarious um and that was basically silent it was all sight gag holy shit and um the other one that he's really famous for is the silent it's it's actually called like the silent show uh-huh and it, it it well eugene's in that a lot and it's like an olive like hits the table and rolls off and it makes like a chainsaw sound uh -huh. and when it hit when the olive rolls off the table and falls on the floor there's like a big explosion so it's kind of like this like you cool. know, like right. this manipulation stuff. Yeah. So I think when you talk about all the people, like you can say, point is, is that you can say Ernie Kovacs has influenced everybody. Sure, right? oh, absolutely. And, but what you can say is that different aspects of his comedy mm -hmm. kind of influenced people like Kaufman because right. they were tuned more into the surreal, surrealist yeah. absurdity 
stuff. Yeah, and a lot and, of the, 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 the a lot of the absurd stuff where he just seems to go on and on and on, almost where it feels like he might be testing you, like Andy Kaufman. Did yeah, a lot, yeah. Know? Well, that's what that, that and that and that's like it's funny too because a lot of his material is very hit or miss. Everything is mm -hmm. hit or miss mm -hmm. with it, and it's because jokes run too long. Sure, and that's like the whole Andy Kaufman thing, right? And you know, and then you have that question as a comedian, right? Mm-hmm. Is it running too long because that's part of the joke, or, or does the comedian not know how to edit themselves? Exactly right. Yeah, and it's like, how clever question. are they? You know, yeah. like that. I mean, I've seen. I mean, that and uh, there's some bits. The thing is, like, there's so much output from uh, from Ernie Kovacs mm. in like ten years time. Yeah. Much less all the output from his radio shows and his. I mean, and none of those right. tapes exist. Like all the Philadelphia oh, morning really? shows, but everything you read about them is that. Uh, there's a lot of output. Yeah. And there is things that aren't great gags. Right. But he's more experimental. It's just put it out there. Yeah. And then I you mean, find greatness, then you find mediocre. Exactly. I mean, you do it enough. Right. But then you wonder how much of the mediocre is just for the sake of it. You know what I'm saying? Right. I mean, like, anybody who by their nature is that experimental has got to be just trying shit. Right. Right. You know? And, I mean... And at puts, some point, are they just trying that totally absurd Tom Swift story, which this album opens with? Yeah. Is that just being... Try just to literally test the audience patience. Right, right. You know, and and that, to me that's definitely worth it because I mean, I, listening to it, I was like, I did. I definitely found some stuff that I thought was great. But then the rest of it, I'm like, what the fuck is he doing? Yeah, what's what's going is on? Is he here? doing something yeah. to me? Right, right. Or does he genuinely think this is worth my right. time or right. his time? <laughs> right. Like, and it doesn't matter because there's enough payoff, I think, in it. Uh, especially again visually, there's way more paying off visually. Oh yeah, definitely. But uh, man, dear Mister Question Man. I am sending this letter from inside my steamer trunk. While I was packing my clothes for a proposed trip to Naples and Venice, the lid snapped shut and I am locked inside. What shall I do? I think you should give up your plans for the trip. I feel that you will not enjoy an ocean voyage inside this trunk. And it does not seem a fair test for those delectable Italian dishes. They lose much of their flavor after being shoved through a keyhole. But and the other thing too to remember is so much of what he did. Again, I, I think of it a lot in the context of like you said, Monty Python. Mm -hmm. So, but like it's all perspective, and a lot of what he does is essentially parody. Mm -hmm. So something like that Tom Swift skit might seem like completely absurd and really kind of almost boring, and the gags running way too long for right. us now. Yeah. But someone that's tuned into it and getting it in 1956—that yeah. was the other thing I was thinking—is right, yeah. looking at it because it's kind of like a parody. I think of like you know, like the youth, the youth novel, the youth story. Right. You right. know, like like I don't know, like Johnny Quick or whatever. Johnny Quick. John <laughs> Quest. Johnny yeah. Quest or something. Right. Well, not really that, but you no, know I what I'm saying. saying. It's I like do. there's some sort of genre that's being. So, you know, there's that, too. Yeah, I mean, an image is going to help you carry something that might not work on, you know, any image. Like, that was the whole appeal of TV, is that you no longer had to use your imagination as right. much. You know, you were being fed something, right. and it was a whole lot easier, I think, right. to relax. For older people, I think TV maybe was, you know, I mean, radio is still, like responsible for a lot of people's imagination growing. TV right. is more like... Well, it, it's funny you mention that, too, mm -hmm. because this is now just me on Ernie Kovacs, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But when I've, like, read about... You know, I've read a couple books on it, mm -hmm. you know, and done some research and stuff. And yeah. Just, it's just interesting, seeing him pretty much all of stuff. And yeah. So this is just my take on it. Not mm -hmm. that I'm anything... Of, it doesn't matter. You know, but, but you don't need to qualify. But, um, but... 
what I find is, you read about his biography, he's a prankster. Yeah. Right? And you think about radio, and yeah. he was like kind of in production, kind of an everything guy. Mm -hmm. Like I said, he was doing on radio through an audio medium. He was doing football games, and he was doing skits, and he was doing comedy, and he was interviewing people, and he was kind of like everybody, a real small radio, like uh -huh. everything guy. So I think it's this weird combination of the fact that he always was a prankster. Yeah. Ever since he was like two, always <laughs> playing pranks. Uh huh. And the and the fact that audio is an illusion, like or the radio is like an illusion based medium. Sure. Oh yeah. Like sound effects and yep. all that. And I think the reason why he was so revolutionary was because his personality was as a prankster, uh -huh. and then he gets his initial training and experience and taste mm -hmm. in the business as in radio. Mm -hmm. Then he goes to TV. And he's not just thinking about filming things or writing things. Right. They didn't write anything. Sure. Like, they, there were no scripts. That's insane. Like, all these things that we heard today, mm -hmm. that's all improv. That's just him making it up. He would have a couple notes. Right. And that's it. That's fucking insane. Like, when they... It's that's funny. Insane. Yeah, when you read, like, some of the skits, this is radio and TV that they would have, mm -hmm. it literally would be like, for that Tom Swift story, mm -hmm. it'd be like, sit down and tell the story of Tom Swift at the football game. Mm -hmm. That is the written script Holy shit. and he would just kind of go with it like that I, oh. so i think i think the point is is that i think that kind of tendency for prank and an illusion mm -hmm. that he kind of got with radio had him sit down and he's not sitting there just thinking i'm going to tell a good story right or i'm not going to make this theatrically sound yeah i'm going to make an illusion yeah because it's going to be entertaining Right. Like how radio is. Right. Like it's entertaining when you're listening to the radio and it sounds like someone's shooting a gun. Sure. Because, you know, D D Detective Sleuth is about <laughs> to get somebody. You know, right. you're thinking like 1930s radio. Yeah. yeah. Little Orphan Annie or something. It's yeah. like stuck in a... a I like a, Detective a, Sleuth a lot. A Detective Sleuth. Let's stick with him. <laughs> uh -huh. But you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And it's like you're a little kid. You're sitting by the radio. I'm like, oh my God, they're really shooting guns. But really what they're doing is they're like popping balloons or sure. some shit. Sure. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's that mentality... Mm -hmm. The fact that he was born at the time that he did, he yeah. had the personality that he did, and he had the experience in radio that he just, then he goes to TV and he doesn't see it as just, you know, putting theater on a flat screen. Right, which you know? was absolutely what all he, the early TV was. Right, he saw it as a, or just putting radio with images. Right. Right. He actually saw it as this, like, medium that you can manipulate. Sure. It's funny, too, because he actually always refer refers to it as the Orthicon tube. I'm being transmitted to you through the Orthicon tube. Uh-huh. And that's, and that's what he sees it as the science. Yeah. You know? yeah. The other thing, real quick, and then I'll stop babbling, no, no, no. is the other thing that's really interesting, which is revolutionary for him, or in general, or revolutionary for TV, mm -hmm. is he totally broke, like, what do you call that in theater, the fourth wall. Yeah. Like, one of his earliest programs, they had to fill time, so uh -huh. he just had the cameraman take the camera off the stand, and he went into the control room and gave a tutorial on how TV's made. That's awesome. You know, I mean, that's unheard of. Right. I mean, we're talking, like, seriously, this is, like, 1949. Yeah. You know? Yeah. TV's such a new medium anyway, and he's back there, and he's nice. telling you, like, this is done with cameras, and these are sets. These mm -hmm. are fake. Oh, this is cardboard. And yeah. This is, and so, like, I think he wanted to put everybody in on the joke so everyone could just enjoy 
Yeah. The surrealism or the prank that's TV. When you so know, much of early TV, well, all, all of entertainment actually, is built on not just a lie of what you're seeing and not just a lie of the story. Not to be cynical about it, but they are, you know, a lot of it's built on a lie, period. But also a lie of who you are as, mm -hmm. like, an entertainer or whatever. But right. it doesn't sound like he gave a fuck about that, obviously. Yeah, yeah I think, yeah. I think he appreciated, and that, you know, he had the characters for a reason. Because sure. the characters are that lie. Yeah. But it's like applied. Yeah, oh, of course. But yeah. then he had like this genuine... Yeah, I, I agree with what you're saying. Yeah. There's this genuine like... His character was genuine. Mm -hmm. But the characters he would portray wouldn't be because he kind of started from the same point that we do. And you just... You don't get to see that anymore. And nobody's playing games the way he was with TV. Yeah. I no. mean, I, I understand. It's not a new medium anymore. It's, it's what? It's now 60 years old. Right but almost 70 years old, and <sighs> nobody's playing with it in the same way. I, I, I still think there is room for it. I mean, people are playing, you know, I, I understand the Internet's the new frontier, et cetera, et cetera, blah, 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 he says to his podcast people. Um, but I don't know. It just seems like people could still be trying to do something yeah. instead of talking at a fucking camera all day. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, why, why not? Right, right. He, um, yeah. I was also thinking, he reminds me, I don't know if you've ever seen... Um, uh, Hugh Laurie's old sketch show with Stephen Fry. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, fucking a lot of the stuff Stephen Fry does. Mm. Like a lot of just playing with language. Yeah. And with sound effects, too. Sort of in the... Not sound effects, but nonsense words and sounds in language just for the sake of saying them and right. just making them sound weird. It just... Yeah, there's a lot of like, I'm going to satisfy myself here and, and, and see what happens with it and see if it's right. funny. I mean, if he was improvising, that's... Improvisers got to face it. That, that's a lot of what that is. I'm going to have fun here. Hopefully they enjoy it. Too. Right, 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 right. Do you know what Do you know what the audience response was for Ernie Kovacs on TV? Like, how long was he on? How popular was he? Like, oh, he, well, he was he was on TV pretty much nonstop um, mm -hmm. from, I guess, like 1951 to his death in 1962. He died in 62. Right. And, um, but he was never on in a steady gig. He would be the, at some point he was, when Steve Allen went on Sunday nights mm -hmm. with The Tonight Show. Yeah. And uh, he, Steve Allen did this special Tonight Show extravaganza on Sundays. Okay. Something that, I guess it's like 57 or some shit. Mm-hmm. Um, Ernie Kovacs picked up the Monday and Tuesday nights to lighten Steve Allen's load. Oh. So he was kind of like the temp second guy for The Tonight Show in the late 50s. Okay. He did programs all over the place. Well, first of all, he was, the, his most successful medium definitely was the Philadelphia Morning Show. Okay. That ran for like two, three years, uh, and then it got knocked out by today. And then right. after that, he kind of just was this talent that was like uh, pushed around. Okay. From I mean, he was with the old Dumont, uh, which was like the fourth major TV distributor or, mm -hmm. or TV producer network. Uh-huh. Uh, in the fifties, it closed. It shut down in fifty in late the late fifties. I don't know when. Uh -huh. But he worked with Dumont, ABC. I don't think he ever. He might have done some stuff with CBS too and NBC. A lot of work with him. So like he would That's have so a weird. special there. Uh -huh. The only one that ever had him on contract was towards the end of his career, or t well, toward the ends of his life, not his career per se. Uh -huh. Was NBC. Yeah. And that was when the time he switched into film and started uh -huh. acting in movies. That's gotta um, say something for. That's gotta say something for who he was. That like he wasn't tied down and he could do every network. Yeah, no, he he was. It, it's this interesting dynamic because he would always fight for creative control. Right. And when it came to money, as far as a single gig, I always have gotten the impression reading 
about him is that the money for the one gig didn't matter as long as he could creatively do it. Yeah. But he would take every possible gig. Sure, sure. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So he yeah. worked all... I mean, that's why there's so much output. Yeah. It's because he had all kinds of money problems, too, like IRS and... Oh, yeah, He spent, like, that. crazy... I mean, they had, like, a rotating... I read something about Jack Lemmon, who was one of his best friends, talking about how it was the only house in Beverly Hills that had, like, this giant ro rotating turntable for cars that pulled up in the driveway. Holy shit. And this is, like, in, like, 56, yeah. 57 or what? 57? So, hold on. i got to let those dogs out. I thought you might be interested in a very heartwarming story that I ran across in paper. Typed it out and brought it in. Man's best friend. Ten years ago yesterday, John C. Flick left his home in Elk's Thorax, Nevada, to buy a loaf of bread. He stood on his porch, fondly petted his collie Rex, fed him some veal cutlet, promised to return promptly, and started on his way. His faithful dog, Rex, fondly watched him from the porch. An hour passed, and John C. Flick did not return. A day passed, and John C. Flick did not return. A week, a month. And through it all, his faithful dog, Rex, stood vigil on the porch. Ten years passed. The collie Rex remained at his post on the porch. Finally, yesterday, John C. Flick returned home. Rex, standing eagerly on the porch, saw his master, leaped to meet him on the walk, and bit him on the leg. What was talking about? Yeah, why was I talking about that? Uh, just because he had tax problems, and he's, he's a Oh, a he's a big money, money spender, yeah. yeah. Oh, and the point is is that, so he, he would try and make as much money as he possibly could. Right. But he would always make, like, artistic control was pretty strong for him. Yeah. So I think that was the dynamic. I mean, somebody, you would only do that if you loved TV that much. Yeah. But it's funny, because towards the end of the career, once he got to L.A., uh -huh. um, he, he, like, hated TV. Because of what it became, or he just was sick of Well, he wrote the novel Zumar, uh -huh. which is a total kind of uh, parody and a total lampooning, kind of brutal in a lot of ways, uh -huh. of the growth of the TV industry okay. in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. Yeah. Uh, it follows this like fictitious like uh, TV producer. Okay. Uh, he was a smart dude. So I think, yeah, I think at some point he just, well, you, your initial question was how who was he on? Yeah. And he was, he was on TV constantly yeah. with a special this month or subbing for Steve or Steve Allen this this these days yeah. and but I think him getting kind of tossed around and it's just like yeah. this this uh, utility talent right right but being so revolutionary yeah, so thing. and then you ask this audience the audience's re reaction was mixed and the critical reaction was mixed yeah. people absolutely like psychotically followed him. Probably something close to, like, Stern in, like, the yeah. 80s or 90s, yeah. right? And then the other half just thought it was just, like, weird and just totally... Well, yeah, they wanted their regular shit. He would do con He would go on TV or on the radio, and he'd be like, we don't have enough props, I need stuffed monkeys, and literally he'd get, like, hundreds of stuffed monkeys, like, in <laughs> Holy shit. Like, all this random stuff. And, yeah. Yeah, and, like, do all these random promotions and get all these... These uh, these props and all this response and yeah. all these items and the problem with I mean that that seems to be the problem I mean with anybody who tries to innovate or do something different is quote unquote middle America is is not the demographic that they fit whatever blah 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 and of course they're not going to try and sell them to middle America because they don't think they're going to want to see anything different or new mm -hmm. give them leave it to Beaver and then right you know well I think the other thing too is the early TV industry was the right place for them sure and TV in the sixties wouldn't have been. Right. Because it was getting formalized, but all the people that were in TV in the 50s and uh -huh. the 40s that he first was 
getting in touch with, uh -huh. and in radio. You know, it makes sense because he was in radio like in the 30s and 40s, yeah, when that was just burgeoning and just starting out right. with a startup radio. So we always work with people that were artistically open, yeah, because these were the cowboys of the industry anyway, because right. they were the first ones to, to, to do anything in the in the medium. It's hard when there's no frontier left at that point. Right. You know? Yeah, it's like, 1962, the frontier's gone, and now they just want him to kind of behave, and because he's a popular name, just be on an interview show. Right. And that's right. the last goddamn thing no, he's ever No, absolutely. He would have been, it would have been, yeah. it would have been miserable, I right. imagine. So, there's, there'd be nothing left to innovate. I wonder what, I mean, as far, you said he did like 10 movies, something like yeah, that? Yeah, something like that, like 8, 9, 10 movies. Do you know what they, I mean, were they pretty straightforward, but he didn't have No, I mean, some of them, originally they were comedy walls, the first, or comedy roles. The first movie he was in was, I guess, 57 or 56. It was with Jack Lemmon, and it was uh, Operation Madball. Okay. And it was kind of like this, I think it had the name of it. It was something like that. I could look it up. But it's like Operation Madball or something. It was with Jack Lemmon, and it was kind of like a a comedy, a, a military war comedy, okay. which would have been popular sure. at the time, Korea sure. War and all that. Yeah. And um, he always took these kind of like really extreme characters. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of times comedic, but also darkly comedic. Uh huh. Uh, you know, in what is it? I think it's in my my man in Havana with Al Guinness. Mm hmm. He actually plays like a Batista regime, like psycho fascist guy. Really? Yeah, but almost like comedically, like okay. he's author authoritarian, but yeah. it's 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 kind of so he's. Towards the his project like the trajectory he yeah. was going on, was he'd be like the third build guy, and just the comedic bartender okay. or the comedic ranch manager or something like that. Right. Who's kind of not like goofy, not like uh, sure. like hey lady like style, yeah. not like that type of, yeah. um, you know, comedy. But he would be kind of the comic relief in somewhat of a drama but nothing too heavy yeah but you know he was a trained actor he did summer stock and sure. those things i mean he did shakespeare and he did all this kind of like art art uh, theater in the 30s and when right. he was a kid in new york at you know in long island so i could see him and i think that's the direction he was going he's going more for like the surrealism for comedy okay. and, the, and you know there's a lot of dark places i think in his in his persona that he probably would have moved and they, he was moving into those roles so, wasn't, it wasn't just like straight comedic slapstick goofy. Right. So they weren't just money gigs. You no, know, no, no, not at all. There's, not so there was a chance for him to find to experiment in something new, which is oh, I think absolutely. I think I mean his ambitions. It's actually kind of sad because when he died in an, in you know in a car accident, that's yeah. how he died. Um, he actually uh, was um, working really hard at and working less in TV, and he was hosting a quiz show or some shit at the time, but he was okay. working really hard to start his own production film company okay. and focus on writing. Okay. And I think he was trying to get behind the camera more. Or, in major motion pictures, be in front but with these kind of collaborative sure. or things that he had a part. Yeah. And, and his TV work in the last two years of his life, or especially the last year, all the specials got very... Not surreal, but very artistic, I guess. Uh -huh, uh -huh. There, there are bits. You know that famous bit? Did I ever show you the bit with the monkeys? Awesome. To the, to the, 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 what the hell is it? The, uh, oh, the 1812? Yes. Yeah, right. you did. And it's got like the monkeys and the bullhead that's spinning around and the guy breaking celery to the cymbal crashes. Yes, and yes. That was towards the end of his career. Okay, right? okay. 
Um, that one, did you see that bit where they're eating spaghetti to the Russian march? I think so. Right, like that's towards yeah. the end of his career. Okay. So I see him going in that type of direction, but on a grander scale. Right. You know? Do you think he so. would have done that with a lot with movies? He would have become one of those guys? Like he would have maybe moved into like a Mike Nichols arena, like directed like some really groundbreaking movies? Or like what would have happened like once Smothers Brothers and Laughing hit and people are trying to be experimental again all of a sudden it's right. becoming hip right you know would he have gone back into TV or do you think he would I think have? I think he might have been if it if it was at the right moment I guess I don't know it's I mean, hard know. it's hard it's to say conjecture. Just... Because, yeah it's all conjecture and the other thing the other reason why I'm not you know just shying away from that is because conjecture but because like I said so much of what he did would be time and place yeah you know like in sure. a weird way the next thing that Ernie Kovacs would be waiting for would be like, like the freaking internet. That's what I was thinking. You know too. what I'm saying? Like yeah. that's what his his type of thing was such like time and place. You know? Yeah. yeah. And like he just had such an imaginative and kind of open mind that. So I don't know with film, it's interesting. You know, you you know what's really interesting though is uh -huh. to think about, large like film. Um, you know, because he only did one thing in color on TV. So There's only one program in color. Jesus. So, I mean, he had all these revolutionary effects in that, but think about, like, special effects in the 60s. Sure, yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. It's like, Jesus, yeah. you know? It's like 1960, you're going from this, and then 1970. Yeah. Think of what you're capable of film-wise and editing-wise. yeah. So I would imagine that he would be, he would have been right at the front of that. Right. You know? Like, that's where he would have really put his focus in, you know? And I, I don't feel like we're seeing... I, I don't know. I, I can bitch all I want. It's going to sound like I'm just a sourpuss. But, um, you know, I don't feel like I'm seeing that in the Internet. I think that, that needs to happen. Somebody needs to be doing what he was doing in every medium. Well, like, oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. like, like playing with it. I mean, the, the Internet is uh, it's, it's, I, it's more limited than people think. It's still just video and audio. It's just combining all the other ones. And, and it, I don't right. know what, what well, you When it's combined, then you get porn. Right. Exactly. Right. That's that's the, right. that's the fun part. Um but yeah, no, I mean that's the thing about him. He just, for me, he inspires the shit out of me as a, as, you know, as a comedian. He makes me want to just keep doing comedy because right. I see that people were doing that back then, and there's no reason to not still right. be doing it. Right. For you though, as a musician or as a writer, as all that other crap, I mean, has it, has he influenced you as far as that goes, or is he just a funny guy? Uh, to you? No, no, I think he's influenced me personally. Yeah, more probably on like, just the surrealist. I just remember being really tripped out. When my dad explained to me that, oh yeah, and that's that's the Fat Frank, my dad. His name's Fat Frank, audience. But like he had like some voices like this, my dad. And he'd be like, oh yeah, he's doing that shit in like the 50s, man. And I just remember being like so blown away when my dad explained to me that uh -huh. this, this shit's not from MTV. Right. This is not MTV sketch comedy. This isn't like from like 86. Right. Right. Which is like, oh man, that's so crazy. No, no, no. He was doing this shit in 1957. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like, like this type of surrealist sketch comedy, quick-witted, dark. I mean, yeah. people getting their heads cut. Like the joke is that someone got set, like, you know, like a little kid got decapitated or a screw in their head. Right. You know. Right. Like, like that's the joke, but it's off camera. Sure. You know, and it's done in such a way that it's just like, oh, it, oh the girl just got hit in the face with a golf club. <laughs> whoa, whoa, you know. So it kind of has like yeah. that that darkness. I think that was really influential to me. Yeah. Like as far as that humor and that kind of freedom that in in sure. in, in you know. That's kind of weird, but but no, but I think I think that 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 definitely because I'm not I'm not as much of a comedic guy. I mean, I'm funny as hell, but right. I'm not like a com comedian or comic writer.
So I think, yeah, he's been a big influence to me as far as his, yeah, kind of innovation and mm -hmm. probably dark comedy, like his, his you know, mm -hmm. that you can use the entire, you can use all the tools in the drawer. Exactly. You know? Like, like most you can, people don't think about it. No, that. no. They've got a camera. A genre. They let somebody else set it all up for them. Yeah, yeah. Let somebody else write it. Yeah. Or whatever. Right. I mean, but, you know, it's production. That's why it's called production. Yeah. It's like, you know, you're producing cars. You're mm -hmm. nailing fenders to frames. Yeah. You're producing TV shows. You're putting writers with cameramen. You know? I don't trust you to make my car because you're going to use nails, so please don't ever, mm. use, don't ever make a car for me. That's true. <laughs> it's true. I would use nails and duct tape because I'm Polish. And is that proud. a Polish thing? Yeah, well, in Trenton it is. Oh, okay. Here are the rules for Drungo. <clears throat> in each box you will find 33 green ping pong balls cut in half called semis, 11 blue simulated plastic squares called drilligs, 17 yellow rectangular markers called jundos, 11 pink wooden triangles called pink wooden triangles, 143 arrows with orange suction cups on the ends, 106 arrows with red suction cups on the ends, 113 arrows with Glen Plaid suction cups on the end. Two arrows with steel tips dipped in poison karari. <laughs> One deck of cards with pictures of famous Chinese rickshaw pullers of the early 11th century on their fronts. One large drungo board with a catch set on automatic time lock. How to play. First open the drungo board when the automatic time lock goes off. Take out the 441 pieces and the rickshaw puller's deck of cards. Then disassemble the Drungo box and reassemble it following the 30-page instruction booklet to form one Drungo board. A card table, four chairs, and a self-revolving automatic Susan for a centerpiece on which you can place fruit, nuts, or bits of candy for your guests. That's another interesting thing on him, too, just from a personal level. is, You know, he's Eastern European, and he's from Trenton, man. Uh-huh. It's like, hell yeah, represent. Is he Polish, too? No, he's, he's, uh, he's actually uh, Czech. He's Czech, okay. Yeah. Still, pretty close. You guys look similar. Yeah. I, I, I just think, he, wait, is he Hungarian? I don't know. It's just... It, it, I was also... Uh, I think he's Hungarian, actually. Yeah? Jesus, yeah. Uh, All right. I think Whatever. Kovacs is a Hungarian name. We need to get those those tapes, man. Like, that... You just blew my mind when you told me that. Oh, in my grandmother's <laughs> attic? Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's, that's fucking weird. sick. That yeah. is sick. Yeah. Like, just for the sake of those need to be out there somewhere. Yeah, so I mean, they're probably, like, the only copies of it because they're masters. Right, right. exactly. There's, there's no... I mean, what, what period do you think they're from? 30s? Probably late 30s. Because yeah. there's, a, I mean, 30s and 40s, they were still doing, like, local stations would make copies on their own, like, yeah. uh, you know, Th cutters. That's what that is. You know? And it's, like, not in vinyl. It's, like, in a heavy slate. That's what I... I, I mean, I they're have, heavy. I, I have a, they're a like, Roosevelt speech like that on a 45 but size one. these things are, like... That big? Like, yeah, they're, like, well, like a foot uh, and a half across. A foot and a half across. Yeah, yeah. they're like that. They're, like, the not wagon Where wheels. the hell do you they're get tired. anything to put those on? I, mean, I don't know. I guess they got to go to some Jesus fucking Christ. lab or some shit at NYU. I guess it's so they didn't have to flip the sides. The one I have is a 45 well, size. I think it's two-sided, too. Huh. But I guess it, they, the blanks were that big because yeah. they probably recorded, like, ten hours of audio. Right, 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 right. I don't know. Holy crap. But, yeah, I got I got My uncle checked them out before. And because uh, and I don't live there, I don't. Right. And the attic's full of, like, stuff. Anybody who's out there, please tell us how we can play these and record them. That's that's all I'm asking. That's Mr. Right. Internet, that's how we refer to right. people out there as Mr. Internet. That's right. Um, do I can't tell as far as because I haven't watched the videos in a while and just listening to this album. Was there a big audience? Was there any audience? Or is that the fucking oh, crew? Good point. Good point. This obviously for this production, uh -huh. they put laugh tracks in. Okay. In okay. between the things, mm -hmm. it sounded like on a couple of the bits there was a studio audience. 
Right. He hated his studio audience, uh -huh. and none of his actual TV has any candle, or any his radio or anything has candle okay, He just re it repulsed him. Like Understandable. He, he couldn't do it. Yeah. Like he like that was like literally in his contracts, from what I gather. That's awesome. It's like when he'd sign on, he'd be doing a show. He'd be like, "There's no," and he was extremely like uh, resistant to studio audiences. Yeah. And when they did get studio on its audiences, a lot of times he would bring them into the thing. They bring he'd bring them up on stage <laughs> and put them on the skit. Yeah, because he I don't know I don't really understand that aspect to him. I understand the no can laugh thing. There's a lack of control, I think. Maybe that might be that might have been it. Because you know. he does have, like, a control thing. Because especially because he had so many crazy personal issues on the outside of his life. Sure. Like, his kids were kidnapped. Oh, that's right. right. Tell but, that story. Okay, so his wife, he had two wives. He married Edie Adams in the 50s, who was a stage, she wanted Tony. She's a stage star and, like, beautiful woman. Ah. Uh. Just, Jesus. Just gorgeous, gorgeous woman. But she's, like, you know, one of these starlets from yeah. the 50s, TV singer, musical... Longer than him? Uh, yeah, I think, oh, nine years? Okay. Eight, nine years difference? That's, that's significant. Yeah, so, yeah, it's significant. And they met while they were, he was her, or she was his singer in Philadelphia. She got cast for the part of just, like, the for the morning show. She okay. was just part of the cast, but she was the pretty girl that sang. Okay. So she would sing a number, mm -hmm. you know, like, to kill, kill time and okay. help you in your morning getting ready. So that's where they met. Before that, he was married to, a, I think her name was Bet, uh, Betty Wilcox. Um, and she was a uh, dancer and singer mm -hmm. that he had met while he was doing radio from uh, Jacksonville, Florida. Okay. And apparently, and again, this is just me, and she's dead, so I can't have any slander issues. Uh-huh. Um, but apparently she's just batshit crazy. Okay, okay. Um... Real beautiful girl. They had two kids. Mm -hmm. He had another child with uh, Edie Adams. Okay. Um, and the marriage fell apart. Uh huh. Apparently, you know, the the first wife was really difficult and not really into the whole domestic scene. Uh huh. And then one day she just left. She she just disappeared, and she was gone. I don't know for whatever six months a year. Uh huh. And then she showed back up, and at that time Ernie Kovacs was like, no. And just because he was pretty devastated by the whole sure, thing, yeah. Um, from I mean, I don't know, I wasn't there, but <laughs> but from what I gather, they never got back together. Uh huh. You know, four or five years later, they ended up finally filing to, for divorce, but they were separated for a long time. So then he's with Edie Adams. I think he's actually married to her at this point. Uh huh. I don't know if he's married to her at this point, but so. The mother gets back in the picture uh, and takes the kids for a weekend, gets to see the kids like twice a month or uh -huh. something. Big custody battles, all this legal costs right. in between. But it ends up, Ernie, Kovacs ends up having main custody. Uh, and the uh, first wife, she comes back in, takes the kids for the weekend, uh -huh. puts them on a ferry, and that's it. Ernie, Ernie Kovacs don't see him for, I don't know, it was like two years. Holy shit. So it ends up, they went all around... Her actual parents helped, apparently helped, uh, help take the kids away. Mm -hmm. They went back down to Florida and were hiding out, like, in a trailer attached to the back of a diner for two years. Those kids were, like, sleeping on mattresses and, like, you know, on a porch. Jesus Like, Christ. in Jacksonville, Florida. Wow. In, like, you know, 1955. Yeah. Hardcore. Wow. So, uh... 
he ended up spending a fortune on private detectives uh -huh. and all these things, constantly taking trips from work to go down and just drive around Florida with his dad, uh -huh. looking for him randomly and doing his own... I mean, we're talking huge, like yeah. two years. Uh, and then they finally find him. I'm, I'm not even sure how they actually ended up finding him, if it was a tip or uh -huh. someone ID'd the kids or something. Because like, the kids weren't allowed to go to school or something. Jesus. Because the kids were like, you know, like... Because um, they were afraid that they someone would recognize him. Because sure. at this point, he's on TV, too. He's yeah. talking about this shit on TV. Yeah. He's, like, yeah. showing pictures of his kids on his own, like... When he's, like, subbing for Steve Allen. Yeah. He would, like, take a minute and be like, by the way, if you've seen my children type thing. You yeah, know? yeah. I mean, heavy shit. Yeah. So, anyway, the, they took... He, they found him, and they came, they took the kids away, and ironically... They had to go back to court, uh -huh. but this time they had to be in Florida. And, you know, another reason why, you know, they got us in 2000, uh -huh. and they, I, I guess, you know, and they got us in, you know, they got Ernie Kovacs in 58. Big, long custody trial, and they ended up giving full custody to the mother that Jesus. kidnapped them. Jesus. And it was crazy. Wow. But at this point, Ernie was already back, and he had moved from New York to California, because he went from Trenton to Philadelphia to New York, and now he's in California. Yeah. He just, or no, I guess they just went back to New York, or they just never went back to Florida. Yeah. So at the time of Ernie's death, he actually had an outstanding warrant for his arrest in Florida. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Jesus because Christ. the wife kidnapped the kids. Yeah. Kind of weird, though. Yeah, that's it was insane. Kinda, it, was, it was like a really weird deal. And then, of course, you have the uh, the issue of his death. I don't know how much more tape we have. No, we're fine. We're fine. Which is kind of interesting. Yeah, we're good. But he died in a car accident. Right. He was drinking that night. It was actually at Milton Burrell's house. It was to celebrate the adoption. Like, or, you know. Uh-huh. He had adopted a kid, Burrell. Okay. And there was some kind of big party up in the hills. Mm -hmm. And he left the party. It was like midnight, 1 a.m. He had been drinking. I think I remember seeing that the blood alcohol content was like 1.0 or something. Yeah, okay. It wasn't like crazy. Right, but it's enough to... It's enough to be buzzed. Yeah. And it was a rainstorm. And the story is, of course, no one was there. Uh -huh. He wasn't with his wife because his wife had driven separately because they were on the rocks at the time. Uh-huh. Uh, apparently. Uh, and he was doing other stuff. But... He the story is is that he was trying to light a cigar because uh -huh. he always was, had the cigars. Yeah. Because when he wrapped around a pole on Santa Monica, I think it's Beverly Glen and Santa Monica is the okay. actual avenue mm -hmm. or the actual intersection in L.A. And he wrapped his car around the pole, his Corvair around the pole, and uh, when the paramedics found him, he was dead. Uh huh. And this is like two in the morning, so yeah. I guess he was there for who knows how long. Yeah half an hour, mm -hmm. 45 minutes before paramedics showed up. But he was actually, like, his draped arm was right next to an unlit cigar. So that's where the whole uh, legend comes okay. from. He, you know, he went there. But, yeah, he died from uh, injuries sustained in the crash. And then, Jesus yeah. Christ. Then it was like a rainstorm, too, so the roads were slick. So it was just kind of a random weird thing. Unless the person going first also used the high roller go first dice in his trial roll, in which he will go third. The highest roller going second and the lowest rolling going first, unless the lowest roller has more than half the drillings or one-third the pink wooden triangles in his possession at the time of the opening of the game, in which case no one goes first. <laughs> However, the person rolling second may challenge the lowest roller by throwing down two yellow rectangular jundos and three pictures of rickshaw pullers while holding the three fingers nearest the little finger of the left hand horizontally. 
His challenge will halt opening play unless he should also extend his little finger horizontally, in which case the player being challenged shouts, little finger out, <laughs> and may penalize the challenger four semis and 11 red suction cup arrows. Provided, of course, he turns three jundos face down before shouting little finger out. Opening moved out the side and we're ready to begin play. The high roller now rolls, including the pair of dice marked high roller first. He tabulates his roll of the 12 pairs of dice, including the high roller go first dice, and moves his drillic a corresponding number of blocks ahead, unless he has thrown an odd number. In which case, he moves his semis one half the total distance and his jundos one third the total distance. He does not move the pink wooden triangles at all. Do you think, I mean, as far as uh, level of appreciation, I mean, uh, I don't know, compared to how much there was in his own time, I mean, how long did it take for people to kind of remember, oh yeah, this guy existed and he was a genius. I mean, they made a movie about his life. Yeah, well, they, they did make a movie. Right. In the 80s. Mm -hmm. With Jeff Goldblum. Right. Have you ever seen it? No, you talked. You told me about it. It's horrible. Oh, that's too bad. It's, yeah. It's but how bad. long did it take people to, to give a shit? I think, I think he was always... See, it's hard for me to gauge that, actually. Yeah. I mean, that's actually a better question for me to ask you. Yeah. Because in the Philadelphia, Trenton region, if mm -hmm. you grew up there and your parents were born in Philly or Trenton, you know who Ernie Kovacs is, because, because it, it's yeah. just like, I don't know, what's the equivalent? I don't know, local guy who would be the equivalent, but right. like, what's the name of the weather guy? Someone that's listening in San Diego, what was the name of the weather guy in the 80s? Right. I'm right. sure you know, and everybody in San Diego knows right. the name of that guy. Right. So, I mean, he has more of that type of role. Right. Right. As far as with his nationally televised things and his movie appearances, mm -hmm. he probably, I, I mean, I think he had a legacy that I don't think he never really... He never got to the point of, like, superstardom. Right. He was just this novel character in the industry. Right. And I don't think he... I mean, then this is just my opinion on, like, whatever. So, you know, whatever it is. But I don't think he ever left that level. You know, I don't think anyone ever forgot about him. Sure. But I don't think anyone really thought about him when he was around. Right. Outside of people talking about novelty in television or something like that. You know what I'm saying? It's yeah. like 1957, someone was probably having a conversation. It's like, oh, Ernie Kovacs is breaking ground. And it's like someone like 1977 that's in the industry yeah. would probably have a conversation and be like, you know who broke ground? Ernie Kovacs. You know, in some ways I feel like it's like that. Yeah. I mean, maybe, But I guess he is, he's definitely, well, he's not in the public eye, so he's much, like in mass, he's obviously a forgotten. Sure. A forgotten figure. I mean, you ask people on the street, no one knows who that yeah, was. Yeah, and I, the thing is, before you started talking to me about him, I just knew the name. I knew my mom liked him. It was one of those things that were, I'd never, my mom exposed me to everything that she liked. Mm -hmm. But this was one thing where I don't know, there was no way she could have, there was no internet at the time, so right. we weren't rerunning his shit in upstate New York. Right. Not when yeah, and like, there's, no, there's no exposure, right? Yeah. Right. Um, yeah, I just, I just. I well, they did, if, it, if it's any indication, they did recently issue a very good, pretty, com not complete, but pretty good thorough box set. Yeah. And back in the 80s, there were, because I owned all this, and <laughs> I own all this. Yeah. But there was a series of three VHS tapes. Okay. That were published in the 80s by some whatever. Yeah. Uh, that were the best of his shows. Okay. And that was re-released on DVD. And think, that's really the only medium you have now for Do you him. think there's a reason? I mean, the thing is, he was an experimenter. Uh, whether you want to think he's a genius or not, I guess that doesn't matter. But, like, is it fine that he remains at the level his, at, that he's at because he was an experimenter and at the very least people know he was there and they can see his... Or would it have been better or better for him to be more famous now so more people would experiment the way he does? You know I th I mean? Well, no, I agree with that. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of things that can, people can learn from him or take from his life and his work yeah more than just the fact of i guess like what's the word that i'm looking for uh, 
just like more than like like a nostalgia aspect. Sure. You yeah. know? Like he's he's yeah. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, like yeah, I think they're def I think he definitely could be more in the public consciousness mm -hmm. beyond just nostalgia because yeah. of how revolutionary he is. Sure. You know, he's just completely groundbreaking. I can see I mean you got I mean some of the shit that he did. Even on this, you know, it's pretty interesting. This was more like character based. Yeah. Um, because that was his one big thing. But I mean you watch some of the things that he did and it's just like yeah, I mean, I, I mean, from for yeah, from our perspective, I mean, I guess you you have to have a little bit more perspective to understand how little people were doing with the technology at the time. Mm -hmm. So I mean, you got to at least place yourself in the mind of a current TV watcher at the, the right, time, exactly. You know? and oh yeah, which is I think is hard for some people, which is why they can't appreciate older stuff. Right, maybe they just can't. They're like, oh, I've seen that before. Well, that's not the point. Right, right. You know, right. Uh, and and you know, but the stuff. I mean, and now once you tell me that he like was probably shooting off of other monitors like that's insane yeah like, yeah that's oh, an the insane stuff that he does do is it. like insane i don't yeah. know i don't know how he accomplished anything that looked as good as he did doing it that way mm -hmm. um but yeah i don't know more people just need to know about him yeah period yeah i agree i agree i think at some point it'll probably come around to well, like i said that big box that was just put out this year yeah so. I'll put up a link to that on the website too, because people should just check. Yeah, people check. Just it's only it's only like twenty five bucks too, and it's like eight DVDs. I can't think. I just honestly, I'm thinking like as far as comedy, at the time, revolutionary. And what was revolutionary was because I mean he's he's a great comedian, but what he was doing was not necessarily just revolutionary for comedy. It's revolutionary for the medium. You know, mm -hmm. um, other comedians like Sid Caesar at the time was revolutionary for just doing like brilliant sketches, you mm -hmm. know, fucking week after week. Mm -hmm. But he wasn't experimenting with the form, with the medium. Right. Ernie Kovacs, I just I can't think of anybody else who was doing that. Yeah. At all. Yeah, it's kind of like the whole package. Of Everybody now is gonna, it's just going you know? back. You know, Conan does some great stuff because I'm absolutely in love with Conan, but he mm -hmm. does great stuff. But it's still going back to like some of his old bits on NBC were the clutch cargo bits with the lip over the cartoon thing yeah. you know what I mean and like that's something somebody else had done it is kind of nostalgic like you were saying and that's kind of why it's you know fun and interesting well, and you new. know you know who's the biggest Ernie Kovacs fan who? and who is like I've, I've read like interviews and things I've found on the internet or mm -hmm. like whatever is uh, David Letterman really yeah he I is extremely influenced he recognizes Kovacs as like the great you That's know? good to hear. So it's, I mean, like he definitely, like I've even read some things that like he even, like made contact with Edie Adams before she passed away in uh -huh. 2007 and stuff like that. And, uh huh. Like he, apparently, like Letterman was extremely influenced. Like I mean, super, super influenced. Yeah. But I think all of them to a certain degree. Maybe not Leno because he sucks. But, well, yeah. Sure. Uh, no, but um, that's a joke. <laughs> but I think like the whole, I think Conan has a pretty. I mean, if you could get Conan in a room and ask him, do you know who Ernie Kovacs is, he'd probably be like, ah, uh, fuck yeah, because yeah, right. Conan's thing is, like, you know, a lot of that's, like, the surrealist absurdity, oh, too. Yeah. Oh, clearly, you know? clearly. All Which his, is, right. All these writers have that aesthetic going on. Yeah, I mean, I mean they, they're, they're probably... Maybe yeah. they're not experimenting, but they're still... Okay, that's one thing to say. He was experimenting because nobody had done it before. Now people know that it's possible and nobody's doing it, except uh, for people like Conan. They're yeah. still using the tools. Yeah. It's nothing think, new. Yeah, I mean, necessarily. Only, I, mean, I don't even think it's just late night or TV shows too. I mean, you can. I'm trying to think of some other comedians that are more experimental. Experiment, more surrealist. It's, it's like what I'm looking hard for. off the top of my head. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not even sure. Who I'm trying to think who, who I like because I don't like. Surreal. I don't like anything that's not surreal. Right. Well, know, I mean, if I I don't really give a shit about it, but I recognize that it's it's kind of groundbreaking as Tim and Eric 
the Tim and Eric show on Cartoon Network. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah they, yeah. I mean, they're they're playing as much as they can with what they've got, which is green screen, which is again awkwardness is their aesthetic for sure. Right. You know. Right. Like that's that's the closest thing I can think of. At least it's on TV. But again, right, right. I can't yeah, it's like that surrealist comedy aspect. Sometimes it drives me insane to the level the level they take it to. Yeah. You know, they're pulling people off the streets and having them do comedy bits. <laughs> it's like yeah. it's intentionally like painful to watch. Yeah. And that's I get it. I do think it's Right. I can appreciate it. I just right. can't sit and watch it. No, yeah, no. This though I can. And I don't know why. I don't know what's different about it. Well and then maybe it's the nostalgia element too. And this stuff you know is pretty some of it's pretty tongue in cheek and pretty funny and genius. Sure. Like the the music numbers where it's just stuff moving to music is just really cool to yeah, me. That's it's just great. cool image. No, it's it just is good image. And you know, actually, Sid Caesar did some similar stuff, but again, wasn't playing with a form. It was mostly with uh, like people. It was just a lot of you know traditional mm -hmm. stage type right. comedy vaudeville. Right, vaudeville. Right. You know, and well, Sid Caesar's great too. I love Sid oh, Caesar. Of course. Right. Yeah. You can't. That is more like theater based vaudeville. Right. Classy. Yeah. Very classy. Ernie, no, Kovac, Ernie like, Kovacs was his own fucking thing. Yeah, he was just on crack. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Not literally, but not literally, but. I've often, art. I've often wondered about the drug issue. By the way. Yeah. I just often wonder, and this is just me now, just making shit up entirely. Go ahead. But I just wonder if, like you know, because his thing is kind of plugged into almost like this beatnik. Yeah. Oh, clearly. Feel. Mm -hmm. So I just wonder if he like you know got stoned a lot or something. I can't imagine he didn't. Right. That's my thought on it. But nothing I've ever seen or read has anything. And everything. And you know what that might be, too? Is that might be the downplay because he is the tragic image because he died in a sudden crazy sure. car accident. Yeah, because he didn't right before die he, of drugs. Right, right before he's breaking in the film or in the process of. Yeah. But, like, so maybe, and people just, it, you know, Hollywood and media was different then. They didn't even, like, yeah. who cares if you drink a lot? Sure. Who cares if you... You know, you you know what pot is even at the time right. you smoke it. Um, so I, I I've never been able in anything I've read to tell if it's just well that was the cultural reaction like we just don't right. care right or if the fact is it's just he was a loon from you know birth right you know but I do notice that his things have kind of like a psychedelic beatnik uh -huh. you know external chemical influence <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, nothing, nothing had been reflected on TV like that before. Yeah, and, and that's why. Then that would just be an interesting thing that no one will ever know. Sure. Because that probably would be the first time that kind of modern culture mm -hmm. and experimentation socially. Because that's you know, and the other thing that makes me because he's a very open-minded person. Even though you have questionable characters like, well, there's he would imitate Germans uh -huh. and do like the crazy German accents right. kind of, and like making fun of the whole immigrant mentality mm -hmm. and he would have like you know Percy Dove tonsils yeah. I mean he's obviously an effeminate character right. like obviously part of the joke is the fact that oh this guy's obviously gay sure right but it was never done in like a malicious way right right right, right. you know um, so the point is is he took s I kind of forget what the point is fuck what are you talking about socially that it was uh oh that's what i'm saying so the point is is that he was socially well you have a couple of those skits so uh -huh. you would think that maybe he's a bigot right or maybe that he was like you know like homophobic yeah or kind of but it's hard to resolve like the fact that like you have a character like percy dove tonsils which is probably offensive in, in a lot of ways sure. or actually it's not probably it is offensive in a lot of ways but i think 
it was more of like an inclusion thing. Yeah. It was kind of just like a lampooning of other characters or stereotypes. Sure. More than making fun of like a, uh, an ethnicity or a lifestyle. Right. Or like, you know, a sexual orientation. Sure. Because th the thing is, is because a lot of his gags just dealt with accents. Right. You know? Right. So I don't think that those were malicious. Yeah. And on the other hand, you look at him personally. Sure. He was an extremely open-minded person. Yeah. Especially culturally and racially. Yeah. Like, he would... I've read stories about certain Magar clubs being Hungarian and stuff. Uh-huh. That... And certain clubs that he would go to, especially on the East Coast, uh -huh. in New York, which he was very familiar with, he'd come back from Hollywood people, and there were places that wouldn't allow Jewish people uh -huh. in there. And he literally would go and invite every single Jewish person he knew... And go there because they knew that they wouldn't turn them away at the door just to be like, like you're you're a bunch of fucking idiots, right? That's awesome. Like okay. he was extremely, and his daughters and his wife. I mean, his wife was from Jacksonville, and his daughters were exposed to an extremely racist, like sure. culture down there. Of course, you know they would come back and they'd be using racial expletives and all these things. I've read about this yeah. stuff, and he was like unbelievably adamant about not letting, not not even just you know correcting that sure but like literally destroying that 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 culture in them or that that, that any tendency that would have been so the point is is that he obviously was a very racially and socially open dude sure, sure. so the fact is could he would he be open to chemical experimentation up too <laughs> right in the in the mid-50s probably yeah you know i, I, I mean have no this doubt. is just a guess yeah, you if know? you're hanging out on radio you're hanging out with jazz guys. You're hanging out with jazz guys. Right, that's you're what I'm saying. He's a, he's, he's a jazz guy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He has that flavor to him. Mm -hmm. He's very open culturally and all this other and all this other stuff. Strangely, believe it's Shandu Barapur, a Hindu mystic of Bombay, India, has slept for the past nine years on a spring mattress he bought in Detroit, Michigan. <laughs> the wife of Paul H. Fletcher. This is titled Greater Love Hath No Man. The wife of Paul H. Fletcher died in 1846. Her husband, Paul, passed away from grief 74 years later. <laughs> Sad things in here. I'll give you one more quickly because they aren't so many. During the war in Korea, Master Sergeant R. Porter Minnick felt something hard strike a cigarette case, which he carried in the breast pocket of his combat uniform. The object was a bullet, which bore the serial number. He read it, 8263947384. Quick as a flash, he reached into his hip pocket, drew forth his wallet, extracted his army identification card. On it, he read with surprise his army serial number. It was 406. <laughs> right in the heart, those things get me. I... So. Yeah, it's a good point, though, that you say he's got kind of that beat... Uh feel to him because this is the time when all the beat authors were, were yeah that's writing. what i'm saying that, that's why he's thing. plugged in he's plugged into something culturally that was happening that must have resonated with some people i mean i don't know what what was he a prime time show or is it late night late night all all kinds of stuff he did yeah. he had some short-lived prime times prime time specials yeah. late night morning all just, over the place I just, I just have to think that this there you know just the same way stoners sit around and watch late night tv now I have to think there had to have been a Yeah, like drunks and stoners. No, definitely. If there you were know? drunks and stoners at the time watching him, they would yep. love it. Absolutely. Because it's just like, dude, you're just wasted and you're watching a cowhead spin around. Right. Right. I mean, right. think about that. Where the hell are you going to see that image, that moving image, yeah. anywhere in 1957? Yeah. Yeah. Nowhere. Like, if that's your lifestyle and you're chilling out and you're very open and you're just experiencing, man. Mm-hmm. 
and then you turn on Ernie Kobach's. Yeah. And he's upside down in a water tank smoking a cigar, but the smoke is milk pouring out of his mouth. Yeah. You are officially freaked out. Right. You know? Yeah. Like... There's, uh, you know, just to skip back to one other point, we we, we can wrap up soon if you want, but uh, just to skip back, uh, you're talking about how some stuff, you know, would be offensive, like Percy Dove tonsils or doing accents, but a lot of people nowadays, because of political correctness and, and because that's just way too abundant, they look at old stuff. Anytime somebody was doing an accent to be funny, they take that as racially insensitive when the whole reason to do an accent for the most just because you're doing an accent doesn't mean you're racially insensitive or insensitive in any way you're just trying to reflect something you've heard right. you know even if it's aesthetically pleasing to me it's aesthetically pleasing to do some voices i like hearing them i like hearing like my voice take on another algorithm yeah. you know you know yeah. like just yeah. to do honestly to do a, 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 a an effeminate voice that's funny it yeah. doesn't mean i find gay people stupid doesn't yeah. mean I even find gay people funny, but that voice is hilarious. Right. You know, and then... Well, you, like you're mentioned, and like how I never noticed, but it's the same from the dude from Office Space. It's yeah, the same voice. exactly, yeah. Percy Dove Tonsils. Which is just funny, because need to talk to Stephen Root, but yeah. Stephen Root is totally doing that as Milton. Yeah. Milton is Percy Dove Tonsils, but like you said... With that little lisp and that weakness yeah. in the voice, and just kind of... Well, the Percy Dove Tonsils is more smug. Yeah, you, you need to so see good. that. You need to. You can listen to this all you want. You need to see him and his glasses. Again, the glasses are the same glasses, by the way, and the kind of weird little wispy mustache. Milton is totally. You're, man, I just can't believe I never per, noticed per, that before. Percy That's it's cool. so good. But like, I don't know. If, if you go, if you go back to that, like, like you say, he, uh, Monty Python did a lot of stuff that could be seen as racially insensitive right, exactly. too. Exactly. Like that. Uh, exactly. What's the bit? I want to say it's in Meaning of Life, where there's a big like. Uh, one of them's in a big rubber suit of a really comical, comically uh, African and uh, uh, native, like with big lips and everything. They don't think that's funny. They don't think a black stereotype like that is funny. They did that song, Never Be Rude to an Arab. They know what racism is. They're not right. stupid people. Right. You know what I mean? There's obviously something else underneath, but sorry, that's me on a rant because I hate when people get too sensitive and don't think two or three times about what they're seeing or hearing. Right, yeah. You know? Well, and that's, and that's one thing I have read about is that, like, Ernie Kovacs was more, almost there was this vulgarity to, like, what he did because because he made fun of gays. And it's like, no, mm -hmm. he did. No. It's, well, it's, it's a completely different dynamic. No, he's like, reflecting a, 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 probably a gay guy, but who cares? Yeah, and that's the, other, that's the other thing of it, too, is that it's not even, like, for me to have, like, an offensive joke, this is actually an interesting topic. Because mm -hmm. I had this conversation with my buddy uh -huh. who uh, was in town. Or remain nameless, but now that he's the only buddy that's been in town in the last year, so he knows who he is. Mm -hmm. But uh, we were talking about what makes a joke offensive. Uh huh. And uh, yeah, it was pretty. Maybe that's a nice little meditative thought to close on. Yeah. But I mean, it's intent. I think reflecting a stereotype is not offensive. Not inherently, no. Absolutely I mean, because not. the fact is, we're all different types of people and colors and greeds and sure. like having sex with different things. Yep. Like, it's cool. Yep. But, um, you know, but I think it when you make assumptions about an individual's personality or choices. Sure. Or intelligence. Mm -hmm. I think that's the line. But Of course. Yeah, no, absolutely. When, when, when there's that. But playing with the stereotype is kind of. There's nothing wrong. That's the thing. People like they they don't separate recognizing differences between uh, you know from discriminating based on a difference, and that's always been a problem of mine. Like I, if I didn't recognize 
you know, differences in other people, I probably wouldn't be able to walk around on my own two feet right now. That's something we do when we're infants. Right, right, We, right, we right. recognize difference. We start to recognize the difference, and we get so proud that we can identify something. Hey, look, Mom, that's that's a school. Yeah, very good. Oh, you just read. You know, we're, we're, we're constantly, you know, uh, rewarded for recognizing things. Right. For being what they are. And then why would we not be expected to recognize, you know, an algorithm? Recognize right. how this person's similar to that person. Right. Once you start saying that person's an asshole for being that way, just because another person of that similar, uh, you know, race or creed or whatever you, whatever a creed is, um, you know, did something to you. Ah, I could be on a soapbox on this all night, Storm. You should stop me. No, it's okay. Go. You for know it. what I'm saying, though. Yeah, right. No, totally. You know, it's 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 it, it's all what you do with it. It's all intent. It's all intent. You know. I don't know. I I don't know if I agree with that 100. percent I think there's an effect too. Sure. You know? Sure. I mean, you can't you can't ignore I mean, what doing using that stereotype is going to. Right. Due to other people. Right. And I think, you know, because I think there's some fault in individuals that use art or writing or comedy. Um, and they go so outlandish uh -huh. with an offensive statement or stereotype or an offensive comment directed at an individual. For the sake of it. For, for the sake of trying to prove the absurdity of it. Right. But at some point, you're just propagating some sort of image. Yeah. You know, it's kind of... Uh, God, now I'm... There's a fine line to walk. There's a fine line to walk. Especially with comedy, because, you right. know, pe people like to think there are no limits. And that's cool if that's what it is, but... Uh, yeah. If you do, at some point, have to be able to find a theme in what you just wrote. There's right, exactly. Be, there's got to be a reason for exactly. doing what you're doing. Exactly, purpose. And some people don't. Right. Some people don't. Purpose. They think, if I just keep saying a funny thing, as long as people know I'm joking, quote-unquote, it's okay. Right. That's, no, absolutely not. Right, There right. has to be a theme. Well, that's, and that's what was my point. The word I was looking for was, like, outrageous. Yeah. At some point, it's just like, how outrageous can it be? Yeah. And what you're doing is you're losing the purpose at that point. Yeah. You're just making the statement to be outrageous. Yeah. And even if you're intentionally not, your intent isn't to make problem against some racial or sexual stereotype. Yeah. You know, the fact that you're doing it just to be outrageous is offensive. Neither of us are high, by the way, everybody at home. Just yeah, to let you no. know, I'm not. I can't speak for Adam. No, I'm not. Um, but, yeah, this is what Ernie Kovacs does to you. This he is what trips you, you out. Yeah, that's right. So, watch his videos. Adam, Storm, is there anything you want to leave everybody with? Nothing. I, I think that was good. All right. That watch his videos. You can shit, listen man. to the clips. I'll put fewer clips in this than I normally do because it's a long episode anyway, but you really need to watch his stuff. It was just an excuse to tell you to discover Ernie Kovacs. So, everybody, thank you very much. Thank you, Adam. Hey, no problem. And, uh, yeah, Comedy on Vinyl. Everybody have a fantastic week. Bye-bye. <laughs> Comedy on Vinyl is recorded at Fort Awesome Studios in Burbank, California. Go to ComedyOnVinyl.com to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr. Our producer is Mike Warden, and our editor is Jason Klom. Comedy on Vinyl is a production of Stolen Dress Entertainment. To see what else we're up to, go to StolenDress.com and look at our podcasts, our books, our blogs, our videos, and anything else that might strike your fancy. And if StolenDress.com is too long for you, you can always go to goo.gl forward slash capital Y capital S Q Z as in zinc capital F.